Welcome, Pete. Hi, hi, hi. <laughs> Welcome. You just got here. How's it going? There you go. How you doing, Chuck? <laughs> great, great. Yeah. So, no, so much uh, new stuff to talk about. New whiskey, new book. Uh, you, you did a. Well, I don't think we've chatted since you uh, put out the new song with Brett back in the day. Right. And uh, I heard something about a new marinade or a sauce or something. Oh, so it, that's. Um... Before COVID, I started the Virginia Sauce and Spice Company, um, and uh, then COVID came, and it was just trying to keep Shining Soul, my candle company, afloat. I couldn't focus on too many things during COVID. You had to bunker down and, and do what matters. So I let that go to the side, and now we're picking back up on that. It's um, but it's interest. It's interesting. The Virginia Sauce and Spice Company is something I designed, kind of to be an inspiration and a help to a lot of my friends here in Virginia. Um, barbecue sauces and things like that are huge. Everyone, everyone makes a barbecue sauce. And, um, and there's always oh, tons of friends that are always like, oh, how do I do this? How do I get distribution or how do I put this out? Or I wish I could sell this. And um, you know, as you've read in, in my book and, 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 you know, when we talked, more than anything, I try to be an inspiration to people that anybody can do anything. So I actually started this company. I don't have a ton of interest in the food industry at all. Uh, I do have one uh, marinade or one sauce thing that I make. It's kind of this, um, it's kind of a, a half Cajun, half jerk sauce that I put on, on shrimp and stuff that I've made my whole life. And I use that as the product to launch this with my friend Clark. Um, but the idea of the Virginia Sauce and Spice Company is and I did all the groundwork so that my friends that have these recipes can sell their stuff. Oh. Like, you know, so it's basically like a record company for barbecue sauces and marinades. So I will sign you to my company and put your product out if I like it. Oh, okay. Interesting. So when does that, that hasn't officially launched yet then? Uh, no, in two weeks, the first product will be available, which is my sauce. Uh, which is called the Evic Number Four, um, and then it'll be followed by a ketchup that my partner Clark makes, and it's really interesting. Uh, my partner in that company, Clark, uh, is a master chef, and he's amazing. And when he had his first child, he thought in his head, you know, he's really health conscious, uh, that all children, uh, children basically get addicted to ketchup right off the bat, and ketchup is nothing but sugar, and what can I do to make a more healthy ketchup? And so to me, that has meaning behind it, right? And so that's going to be our second product. And then we have some other ideas. Uh, and then we'll start addressing our friends and family that have these different products and put them out. But it's going to be up to those people to promote it. Like, for instance, if I, if I, you know, if you had something and you came to me and I signed you to put your product out, I'm not it's got to be your marketing dollars. I'll tell you what to do. I'll open all the doors for you. I'll do all the things that I've become good at doing, but you still have to do the work. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, just, just like a band, you know? Hmm. Cool. <laughs> so, that sounds fun. Yeah. So I took every, just like with Shining Soul. I don't know if you remember talking to me about it, but I always said uh, in the candle industry, uh, it can't, I, what I thought was interesting about the candle industry was it was a billion dollar industry without a face, without, um, any logos or anything like that. And I took everything that Gene Simmons had ever taught me in life 
not personally, but just being in the music industry. And I applied that to the candle industry. And I've always said, if you can succeed in the music business, you can succeed in anything. So as I've gotten older, it's interesting to apply all the things from the music industry to other industries and see how it works. And it seems like it's doing pretty well. The candle stuff is taking off, right? You have a couple brick and mortar stores, right? Yeah, I have a store in Myrtle Beach and I have a store here in Manassas. Uh, we did have a store in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, but it 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 was doing good. It was making us money, but the time it was taking me to manage all three stores was was uh, just too much because I wanted to do some other things. I wanted to do uh, I wanted to write my book. We had the Party Girl tour coming, um, so it's one of those things you hear people say that joke. Two kids is is okay. Three kids is too much. It was the same thing with the store. Uh, I, I can balance two stores really easy. The third one was was became overwhelming for me. Yeah. So, I mean, God, your work ethic is is so amazing. You talk about that in the book that, um, I mean, I think at one point you said I was working myself almost literally to death. And uh, you say, I suppose I can thank my dad for my super right. work ethic. So is that like you inherited that gene from your dad or did your dad teach you the work ethic? I, you know, I think that I must have the gene because I do it. You know, my dad certainly taught it to me, but I didn't realize that I'd become him till I already had. So I, I, there has to be a certain level of genetics, but it was also just what I grew up on. My, my father worked like, no, I still don't know a man that worked like him. I mean, to be honest with you, Brett works almost like my dad, but my dad was a hard labor guy. So that gives you a little more street cred, but it's just, um, he was 24 seven. If he was awake, he was making money to provide for our family. And somehow that's in my soul. If I'm awake, you know, it's, I'm not greedy and I'm not rich. I haven't done amazing for myself, especially, you know, I'm not like Brett. I don't have a private plane in nine houses, but, uh, but I, I have a sense, whether it's the music business or any of my other businesses, if I'm awake, I, uh, I feel like I have to be working. Like, like if you were to ask my girlfriend, Tina, she would probably uh, agree that, like, I don't even wake up. My alarm goes off and I, I'm working before I get out of bed. Um, and, and I don't know anything else. So it doesn't feel wrong. I know that as I'm getting older, I'm getting tireder, if that makes sense. But but it just it's just all I know. That's all there is to it. Well, yeah, because that's interesting. You mentioned in the very beginning of the book about how you're you're an emotional person person, and you have like panic and anxiety are constant companions. And there's yeah. this, like hurricane swirling in your head. Like, so I was going to ask you, like, do you feel like that's getting easier with age, or it sounds like you still have that urge to work and you, you got I got to do this, but that's like harder to do it as you get older. Yeah. I, you're exactly right. And that actually, to me, probably creates more anxiety than I, I think my anxiety is getting worse with time. Um, I literally wake up every morning with a panic of, fuck, I've got to do all of this today. And in my brain, in my brain, I'm like 10 years behind in all of my goals and all of my aspirations and all the things that I want to accomplish. <laughs> I'm like 25 years behind. So you're, you're you ahead of me. So. Yeah, you get it. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, I'm trying to start something. I started something when I was 40. You know, I was like, oh, I'm going to start a podcast. Like, I'm like, I should have done this when I was 20. Like, you started like what? Like 
uh, well, you say in the book, uh, it was like 13 well, or something. You, I mean, well, I started playing guitar at five, five. Yeah. But um, the band, first but, band was like 12, 13. Right, right. But I was, yeah. My first band was my first real band was the first week of high school in 1987. Uh, I literally got in a band and started going, but it was in my junior year that I was playing professionally. I was yeah. in my junior year of high school. I was in the clubs playing. And by my senior year, I was playing four and five nights a week. Yeah. That, that's so, so, I mean, really like your whole life. So why do you feel like it's you're 10 years behind? I mean, I feel like you've been preparing for this and working hard the whole time. I just, there's, there's, um, there's other things. I haven't written enough music yet. I still have songs in me that I, I have verses and choruses that I wrote 20 years ago that I haven't finished yet. I mean, I've finished other songs, but you know, I have so many ideas and different things that, that, um, I just haven't done yet. And it's not lazy. It's time. It's, it's prioritizing what you have to do versus what you want to do. And sometimes writing songs, we all know there's no money in that anymore, unless it's super smash hit country song, or it gets used in a video game or a movie. Um, so sometimes you have to prioritize. I'll get around to writing that, finishing that song. And then a year goes by and then another year and then 10 years go by. I mean, you know, uh, look at a different kind of truth from Van Halen. The entire record was 30 years old for the most part. You know, it was all old Van Halen ideas, <laughs> you know. So I don't think I'm alone in the way that happens, you know. But, but you know, I I just have so many ideas and so many things that that I want to do. And, and, you know, interestingly enough, I'll tell you, I... I have gotten really into the um, just the primitive camping world, like take a tent and go out in the woods and, and, um, and I go online and I don't know if you have ever researched this. There's people making living out of just filming themselves camping, right? Oh yes. I know. I, I want to do that. I want, I've been looking at RVs and trailers. I love watching those YouTube channels. I, I, it's the it's my only recreation. Sometimes at like two o'clock in the morning when I finally decide to wind down, I'll put on YouTube and just watch these people. And it's fascinating to me. And yeah. it's I I I I want to live. I may if you go to my YouTube page, uh, we made one video of a camping trip we did to to give it a shot. I wanted to see if I could I could do this. And I think I made a video that looked pretty cool and it and I kept it short and I I, I it's um I did all the things I was supposed to do. And to be honest with you, it only got, it hasn't even had 500 views. I'm like, Oh, I guess I suck at this. I don't, cause they have like millions of views. Those people. Wow. Yeah. It takes a lot of time with the YouTube stuff. I can tell you that it's yeah, I'm yeah. almost five years in. I mean, I'm four years in and it's like, there's so much, it's yeah. It's so competitive, but yeah, I really love those videos. I want to get yeah. an earth roamer. Have you seen those? What is it? An earth roamer. What is that? It's like an off-road RV. And so you could take it, it's got four wheel drive and it's all like jacked up, but it's like, it's a, it's a recreational vehicle. You could live in it. I mean, I was like, I just want to take an earth roamer and just travel the country for like a year. I think it'd be so fun. The very second we're done this, I'm going to look that up. <laughs> You'll love it. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool that you're into it too. And you get it. You know, I, I also think that it's a, I think that it's a, you know, I see a lot of people, especially during COVID, I saw a lot of people buy those sprinter vans and live in those things. And it's fascinating to me. I mean, I've spent 20 years of my life in a tour bus living that kind of nomad life anyway, mm -hmm. but that's even more freedom. Like, like you could just, 
it's fascinating to me. I, you know, I still have one kid that's uh, in a senior year of high school right now. And when he graduates, I don't know what I'm going to do because there's, I, I would love that life. I would love to just, you know, even temporarily, right? Like even if you just did it for a few months, like maybe that's enough of a, and you could just focus on your music and writing songs and and record, you probably record on, you know, in an RV or something. I mean, mean, you know, that's what I, for 20 years, me and Brett have made records on buses. We've recorded on his plane. I have a mobile, my studio is a mobile rig that I've built and I've I've been building it for 20 years. I replace it. I, when new technology comes out, I'm always on the top of the the recording industry gear and uh but literally we've made records on brett's plane before we uh so the idea of i i actually one of my best friends is a guy named jeff giuliano who is a uh a world-class mixer he has probably probably 200 gold and platinum records mixing stuff he started mixing for dave matthews uh he produced and mixed the first john mayer record uh and then he he's gone on to do all the florida georgia line stuff and um, he, he, he has so many CMAs or awards and he, at this moment right now, today, he probably has three or four songs that he mixed that are on the charts on the country charts. And for the last three years, he's in an RV and he's mixing those records on a boat or at a picnic table, looking out at a lake. And, and that's the life. You know what I mean? You can do it. <laughs> yeah, that's what I want to. I just want to travel the country and just d- record podcasts from an RV. I think it'd be amazing. Yeah. Why Why wouldn't you do that? Like, uh, you know, what keeps Trying to you- convince my girlfriend to do it. <laughs> Does she not want to do it? Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. I, I to be honest with you, I think about uh, getting rid of everything and doing that. And just for one year, uh, the money that I might be able to save up from from getting rid of some of my other living expenses would be amazing. You know, that's smart. Yeah. (laughs) It's interesting that you have this uh, thing and you talk about the book and we just talked about it, but just how it's, it's so weird to me that you think like you haven't worked hard enough. Like, I mean, you literally talk in the book about driving and falling twice. You fell asleep driving, not from being uh, drunk. You fell asleep just because you're exhausted. Yeah. Both both times. Both times were 10 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Cause you're working yourself to death, but you're saying, Oh, I'm 10 years behind. I'm like, what? Like you're one of the hardest people, hardest working people that I know. I mean, unless there's something I'm missing. No, no. I, I don't know that there's anybody in the world that would say any different. Uh, I don't know that it's a point of bragging or something to be super proud of, uh, but it, it's true. It's, it's all I know. But uh, yeah, those accidents were terrible. <laughs> Have you ever fallen asleep at the wheel? Uh, I almost did. So when I first moved to Arizona, it was like when the housing market crashed or whatever, and I couldn't yeah, yeah. find a job. So I got the, a job at a methadone clinic, which was really, really eye opening. Yeah. But it, the thing with methadone, so for people who don't know, methadone is a substitute to heroin and people take it, but a lot of them are construction workers and stuff and they have to go to work at like five in the morning. So they come yeah, yeah. to the methadone clinic because they don't trust you to take it home very rarely. So you have to come to the methadone clinic at like four in the morning. So I had to get there at like three 30 in the morning. So it's like, you're trying to figure out like, do I stay up all night or do I try to go to bed early and set an alarm? I could never get, get it right. But after I'd be driving home, be like 11 AM and I'd be like, I'd be like, Oh shit, I'm falling asleep with the wheel. So I finally just had to quit. I was like, I'm going to crash. I didn't crash, but I, I see where you're coming from. Yeah. So the very first time that that happened to me, uh, when I, when I came to, I looked up at the car and the car I hit had a baby seat in the back of it. Mm-hmm. 
And the only, I, my very first thought was I just killed a fucking kid. Like it, 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 to this day, I still feel that emotion seeing that I didn't, the kid wasn't in the car, but could have been, you know what I mean? And it's funny because my son, my, my oldest son, who's pursuing a music career of his own, uh, has a very similar work ethic as me, um, which is surprising this day and age. And it's not exactly the same. Let's let's say on a grading curve of what a work ethic is to his generation, he's like me. Does, does oh, that make sense? Yeah, yeah. no, it's very different. <laughs> it's very um, different. But I, I oftentimes he drives um, Myrtle Beach is 500, 600 miles from us. And my store in Myrtle Beach, he'll drive there and back in a day uh, to deliver a product to that store for me. And uh, I do, I used to do it during COVID. I drove back and forth there every week to, to deliver product. And um, cause I wasn't on tour and uh, I'm frightened that he's going to fall asleep too. It's like most parents are like, I hope you don't do drugs. I hope you don't drink. I'm like, I hope you don't fall asleep at the wheel. That's what my, my fear is, you know? Well, yeah. Don't they have some of the new cars have this technology that like, I think it was the Mercedes or something. It can, it like somehow picks up on your eye movement and it will beep if you start to close your eyes. Yeah, yeah. And I have one of those new Ford Broncos and it uh it is considered one of the safest cars on the market. In fact, my insurance dropped hundreds of dollars from just buying that car. And it has all these kind of uh it has the lane assist thing. It will pull you in and out, it'll warn you that you need to take a rest. It's uh it's certainly harder to wreck or fall asleep at the wheel these days than it used to be. So yeah, well, that's good. Well, when you look back, besides, uh, I mean, obviously that terrible incidents with the car wrecks, but those early days, I mean, that's what the first third of the book is about. Uh, I think one of the most interesting parts to me was when you brought up Long Longs, because that's in Arizona, but I didn't move here until 2008. I think it was already gone, but it was gone. About, yeah. I don't want to tell, I don't want to spoil the story because it's a really great story. So people need to get the book to hear the funny story about Long Longs, but just talk <laughs> in general about playing there. And the whole scene, because you it was funny, you're like explaining, like, yeah, I played with this guy, Roger Klein. I'm like, people that live in Arizona, they all know Roger Klein. But yeah, yeah he's he the, the king. He did the theme song for King of the Hill. And uh, uh, yeah, so talk about the Arizona scene back in the day. That sounds so, cool. So real quick, I have to do something. So this is this is going to be a, a a moment in my life of aging is happening on your podcast. Right. Okay. This moment, a, a moment I didn't want to happen. I'm literally looking at your screen and my eyes are starting to hurt because I'm going blind. So I'm putting my glasses on because I'm starting to get a headache. So no worries. They're live on your podcast. The world gets to see the moment where I had to put my glasses on. Um, (laughs) uh, So Long Longs, um, Long Longs was in Tempe right down on the ASU campus. Um, And it's funny. I don't know. I feel like I told you this last time we talked. My entire life, I'm drawn to Arizona. Even though I'm an East Coast guy, I I dreamed of what it must be like. I I it just and again, I'm a Star Wars fan to the end of life, so I probably related to Tatooine or something like that. Whatever whatever it is. And so when my first record came out uh, with my band Some Odd Reason, and we started getting some airplay and some pickup and some stuff started happening in Arizona. I just got so excited and I called all the booking agents. I was like, oh, this is it. I'm, we're going to break in Arizona. Send me out there. And so that was the first thing we did was start going out there to play. And uh, it was just, um, it was interesting because they called what I did desert rock. Do they still call it desert rock to you out there? Uh, I, yeah, I haven't even really heard. No, I don't even heard that term very much. Yeah. I, I remember I was labeled a desert rock band and um, 
But right at that moment, it was only a couple of years after the Jim Blossoms broke. And, you know, the Jim Blossoms were, were from Tempe. Uh, and uh, as far as the scene, it was alive. I remember, I remember down there on Mill, Tempe on Mill, Mill Street, there was another club called Gibson's. And there was like clubs on every corner of, of the area. And we, we, I remember one night we played Long Longs. And then the next night we played across the street at Gibson's. And then the, on a third night we played in that same, that same little area and anywhere else I'd ever been in the country. You couldn't do that. You couldn't play three nights in a row, 10 feet from each other. And we did, and we had great gigs every single night. And um, it was just a lot of, it was a lot of fun. Um, I, I don't know what else to say because as the book tells you, that was a very intense time of partying in my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess yeah. so, right? Uh, and but um, you were still working hard. I mean, it wasn't oh, like oh it yeah. But, I mean that that one experience I tell about in that book was extreme. That yeah, was yeah. that was like nothing else in my life. But uh, but it was just great. People out there loved live music at that time and were super supportive of it. They, people, I felt like in that Tempe and 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 um, Mesa. And even Scottsdale, and and I never got down into the city of Phoenix, which there used to be a place called maybe it's still there called the Mason Jar. Yeah, it's been uh, rebranded as the Rebel Lounge, I believe. Oh, that was famous. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I never made it to that venue, and I wanted to always make it to that venue, but um, people just embraced rock. I sold a lot of records in Arizona, and people would throw parties and 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 um. And then once that band somewhat reason broke up and I reconstructed it into Evic, uh, the first thing I did before the record was even out, I got us out and got us back out in front of those people at, at Long Longs. And, you know, I was a giant Roger Klein fan uh, with his band, The Refreshments. You yeah, know? that first record is so good. Yeah, they, uh, that song Banditos, I still play that to this day. I cover it to this day and when I do cover gigs or just any opportunity, something comes up, I'll sing that song all the time. And then he had I, a, I think the song, what do you think about the song Mexico? Because I think that's one of the most underrated songs. I remember so the first great. time I heard that was years it, after it was released, and I was like, why have I never heard this song? It's brilliant. It's it's a brilliant song. And what was the other one that uh uh it's been a bad year for good days or something do you know that song i know if is it on that first album i know them all I, i'm terrible at song titles sometimes yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they're all great and have you met roger uh i have never met him i have tried to get him on the podcast a few times and i've, I've not been able to i had robin wilson from gin blossoms and gas giants on yeah, yeah. early when i was terrible i mean i'm still not great but i was like really raw when i had him on yeah how was he robin wilson yeah. Oh, he was amazing. He was so nice and kind and he probably shouldn't have done my shitty little show at that point. But I think because I'd had the black moods on and some other local Arizona, I think he was trying to like, kind of help me out a little, which I think. I got really yeah. yeah. He's cool. We've done some stuff with him as the Brett Michaels band. We've played with the Jim Blossoms a few times and he he's super cool. I, I think. Yeah. He, and I love the Jim Blossoms because you know, that Jim, the Jim Blossoms and, and a, a handful of bands like that, like Matchbox 20 and stuff were what I gravitated to when the grunge stuff came and I just didn't, I appreciate the grunge stuff now, but I didn't feel it then when, you know, I was, I was, I love poison and I loved warrant and, and I love Van Halen and I didn't, I didn't connect with that stuff. So it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't till a few years later that all of a sudden there were bands like Hootie and the Blowfish and Matchbox 20 and Jim Blossoms that had pop songs again, that felt good. It, yeah. You know, 
And, and I really enjoyed that stuff and the Sugar Ray stuff. That you know, Mark McGrath's a good buddy of mine, and and uh, it's funny he doesn't. I've known Mark a long time, but he was just out on the party girl with us. Yeah. And I don't think he he he's always known me like this. And there was this time in the in the nineties where I had the exact haircut he has with the short hair and the the frosted tops and all that stuff. Really? I didn't yeah. see this. And and he didn't he I don't think he ever believed I was anything but this ever. And I showed him all those pictures during the party girl and uh we got a good laugh about that. But I but during that time, that shift, uh I, I enjoy the point of this was I enjoyed the gym blossoms. I enjoyed the refreshments because yeah. it was, it was just straight up rock and roll stuff again, instead of the, I hate to say it, the gloomy kill yourself. Like, you know, but I, when I, now that I've traveled the world, I see that grunge stuff completely different because I've been to Seattle so much that I understand, I understand more now than I did as a kid. The influence of your environment creates the sound. You know, the L.A. scene was created because it was all about partying. Those songs were about what was happening. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was a happy kid in D.C. and Virginia. So I didn't understand what they were talking about. And and it's, it seemed made up to me, you know. Well, that's interesting you say that because I grew up in Seattle in the 90s and I but I. And I, I was kind of a depressed kid, so I didn't like listening to the, I liked the grunge. I respected the music, but I didn't really love listening to it because I was like, well, I'm already depressed. I want to hear something like Poison or Motley Crue that's going to pump me up, you know, that's going right. to get me like feeling good because I was already so, feeling shitty. I didn't want to feel shittier. Right. But so it's interesting, even though you're kind of saying the opposite of what I'm saying, you're also proving the point. You were depressed. Yeah, because I lived in Seattle in the 90s and it was yeah. depressing. Yeah, and I I didn't understand that until I got to travel the world and start to see and 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 even though I was so anti that Seattle movement, once I've it taught me a huge lesson because it taught me it it taught me that your sound is you know New York had a sound, Nashville has a sound, you know Florida has a sound, all these and and Seattle that that music was just an audio version, an audio painting of the real life there. And I get, I understand that now. I, when I was a kid, I didn't want to even talk about it. It was all stupid and fake and there's no way anyone's that upset. And you know what I mean? But, yeah. Well, that's interesting. Um, I had the basis from collective soul on, on my show and he told, he told this story. So interesting. So they were touring with Van Halen and Sammy Hagar and Brett Michaels was friends with Sammy Hagar. So Brett Michaels came backstage one time and this was like, right when the grunge thing was happening. And he was like, yeah what am I going to do? And and it was like, Oh, that's so interesting. Does he, does Brett ever tell you stories about those days? Cause yeah. there was that gap when they kind of like, he was kind of like, he didn't have much to do. Well, he talks a lot about it. Um, and he has a positive attitude about it because he'll often say that Nirvana saved the industry. He'll say the exact opposite of what you would think that, that someone from that era uh, would, but he, he was very aware that it was growing stale and he was very aware that um, it was oversaturated and something had to change. Something always has to change. So, uh, and, and Brett, you know, Brett, like me has a list of things he still hasn't done, uh, you know, and he really wanted to pursue acting and writing movies and, and, and that kind of stuff. So when the grunge thing came after the, after the shock of that, it, happened so quick he embraced that time to try and do other things you know he started that movie company with charlie sheen 
uh, and then they made those movies together. Um, and he did a lot. Of, he did a lot of other things. But Poison never quit during that time. I mean, they. You know, you you could possibly attribute some of the some of the lack of interest that happened during that time was CC leaving. You know, and then a revolving door of guitar players for a couple of years till CC came back. Because once CC came back, it was great again, and people were they were playing amphitheaters. Poison has never played a club to this day. A lot of those bands went back to clubs. Poison has never they've stayed true to that arena rock stuff. You know what I mean? They never had to do it. And uh, you know, there's a few bands that that were like that. They're Bon Jovi and and Van Halen and and, and a couple, but um. Uh, but he embraced it and he loves Nirvana. Uh, he he loves all that stuff though, man. He, he, I have lots of music me and Brett have written in the early days. I probably have a hard drive full of stuff 20 years ago that is incredibly nineties influenced, very um, smashing pumpkins. There's a lot of field like smashing pumpkins and Bush feel to it and stuff like that. And, uh, and we would listen to those records together and and then and we enjoyed them and we'd like i really like this song and we should do something like this and something like that and he you know the one thing that i will say about brett that's very inspiring is you know and there's a million people that probably put a bullet in my head for just saying this but he's he let me let me explain the whole thing before your eyes get big when i say what i'm gonna say (laughs) i can't wait for this he's more I'm not saying he's exactly like, but he's more like Prince than he is David Lee Roth. He is experimental. He holds no boundaries. When he wants to write a song, he doesn't care. He doesn't go, I've got to make it sound like this. He'll say, he'll say, let's write something that this is inspiring me today. Let's write something like this. But he'll 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 do anything in the studio. He'll he'll take anything that's sitting on the table and make it an instrument. And a lot of people don't understand that about him. He, he, there, there's a millions of our solo songs that he beat boxes on, or he'll hum these parts or do these parts with his vocals that you never even know are a, a human voice. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? And, and he's always into just experimenting. He doesn't, he's, he's, you know, grab this guitar, grab that guitar. Let's have, this kind of drum sound, that kind of drum sound. And and a lot of people, when they make a record, want the record to sound like the record, like that similar production from beginning to end. He doesn't even want that. He he treats every song as it's its absolutely own song. And, and he pushes the boundaries. Nine times out of 10, I'm the one that has to reel him back in. I'm like, Brett, come on, let's, let's, let's pull this back in a little bit. You, you aren't going to, you know, we're not going to go out and record you digging a hole in the dirt and turn that into the drum sound, you know, but those are ideas he has. <laughs> you wow. know? Okay. Yeah. That sounds, that's interesting that you say that I, I could, you know, the first few poison albums are pretty straight, you know, straight ahead rock, but then even flesh and blood and the native tongue it, and then crack a smile. I mean that now I hear what you're saying that. Cause that one, there is stuff where he's like beatboxing and it gets yeah. more, and then his solo stuff obviously took off too. Yeah. He, uh, it's funny. He loves crack a smile. He, uh, he loves all I those. Too. He's I had blues on the show. He's a great guitar player. Oh yeah. He's unbelievable. Like, like, you know, CC's a legend and, and Richie is a uh, Kotzen man. Kotzen's incredible. Right? I had him on the show too. He is fat. He, did you know that he almost, uh, he actually got the job for Ozzy, but they just, then they, uh, the internet killed it. But uh, he, for a short time, he was Ozzy's guitar player. 
Wyatt, I don't know that. I didn't know that. I met Richie for the first time actually a year ago this weekend. Uh, I was at that Monsters on the Mountain event. I don't know if you hear about that. Yeah, in Tennessee, right? Yeah, I was there. And uh, he has a uh, his manager, Craig Bradford, who looks almost like you. Do you know Craig? No, I don't, but he sounds like a good looking guy. The first time I ever did, when the first time I did that podcast with you and you popped up, I thought you were Craig. And I was like, oh, is this a joke? Like Craig's doing a podcast now. But, uh, (laughs) but um, he, he introduced me to Richie for the very first time. And it was really awkward. He, he, he thought he was being funny, but he came up and he goes, in a weird way, Richie, this was your replacement. I'm like, you shouldn't have said that. That was, that was, you know, because becoming Brett's guitar. I'm trying to remember if that was the guy I dealt with when I, um, when I did Richie's interview, because so, it was interesting. That was an interesting interview because I asked him some stuff about the poison and uh, I didn't know his manager was or whoever it was publicist was listening in on the call. And he said, yeah. Yeah, can you cut some of that stuff out? And I was like, okay, yeah, sure. But <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. I thought he was a wonderful guy. He's got a really interesting sense of humor. Richie Cotson does. You know, does he? Oh, I didn't, I didn't pick up on the sense of humor. Dry. It's super dry. Like, Oh, I love, I love dry. Yeah. Humor. yeah. And I've never met blues, but, but I remember when I first joined Brett's band, uh, just thinking, man, you know, I, it's not, it's not like Ozzy where you're following in the footsteps of Randy Rhodes and, and Brad Gillis and, 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 um, uh, Jakey Lee and Zach, but I, I was stepping into the shoes of some great players. It was, there was some nerves to fill about that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, yeah. So and obviously a lot of your book is about your time with the entire second part is about your life in Brett Michaels band, but um, explain to me a little bit more in depth about how you got the job. Cause you say in the book that you drop some hints. Now, how do you do that without, cause I try to do that a little bit, but then I just feel like a douche. If I do, if I'm too obvious about it, I mean, what do you say? Like, Oh boy, it sure would be great to play in uh Brett Michaels band. What, like, how do you drop a hint without being kind of like obvious? You know um, well, so the guitar player prior to me was uh, a guy named Steve Frangidakis. And, uh, me and Steve became really, really good friends because my band was his opening band. My For two years, our band opened up for Brett on the East Coast on his dates. And I got to be real tight with all the guys uh, in, in, in the camp. And, um, and it, something happened. So if I remember this exactly correctly, Poison was going on tour with Kiss. And because of that, Brett had to cancel his entire solo tour that was booked, um, putting his band out of work. Right. And so uh, Steve had decided that he wasn't going to return because he had during that time that something during that time he had to do something else. And so whatever that something else was, he was going to continue to do. And um, so, but Steve was still very much in Brett's ear about Steve helped Brett build a new band. So Steve was the first to go to Brett. And I would, I would say to Steve, Hey, if you're not going to do that, you know, I love those songs. And so those were the hints I would drop, you know, and I, I would drop the hints to Steve and big John. Do you know who big John is? Um, I just heard about him in the uh, book that he was the tour manager and then he was on rock of love a little bit. And then yeah. you later took oh, he's over Brett's security, this. he was Brett's security guard 
uh, for Poison for a lot of years, and then he became the tour manager and security for Brett on the solo career. Um, but I would drop hints to him too. I was just like, "Hey, I don't know what's going on," you know. And then one day, out of out of you know, I don't know exactly how I explained it in the book, but the truth of the matter is, one day Brett called me himself, mm-hmm. and well, his 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 personal manager Jana called me and said a blocked number is going to call answer this call. You're going to want to answer this call. <laughs> Shit. You didn't explain that part. That's fucking cool. Yeah. And uh, so the phone rang and I answered that's back. That was landlines. I don't, I, I had a landline and uh, uh, he just said, Hey Pete, how you doing? I have this gig in Detroit. And just like I told, I, I tell this part in the book, this gig in Detroit. And I, you know, I know your whole band knows the stuff just come up and play. And we didn't rehearse. And uh, so we went and did the gig and it, it was awful. I, I tell this in the book. I don't, yeah, it, it was awful. And uh, I remember I think thinking, you told, we talked about it on the last episode, episode too. And then yeah, yeah. The second chance, uh, but he gave me the second chance and here we are. So that, that's basically the story, you know, but yeah, I would just drop hints to his guitar player before him, knowing that the guitar player was leaving. I wasn't trying to steal anyone's job. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. You know, and I push the limits with that sometimes. I've done some dumb stuff that I regret. Like there's been a several times I've been in Sammy Hagar's dressing room and I I always will go, Hey Vic, you know, if you're ever sick, call me, let me fill in, or if you happen to break a leg. <laughs> I, I remember telling him a couple of years ago, if you ever break your leg or anything, I can fill in for you. And then he broke his fucking leg. Do you remember Vic Johnson breaking his leg? I don't know, but that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, he broke his leg, but he went out on the tour with a broken leg anyway. But I felt like I, I, I willed that to happen. I felt guilty, no. <laughs> you know. But, uh, you know, but um, yeah, that's it. I just dropped hints like that. That was the original question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I just yeah, because I'm always like, I always feel kind of like douchey, to, to, like doing that kind of stuff. Like it is, if you it, know what it, I mean. If you're actually trying to poach a gig. It's, it's, no, 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 not poach, but like, so for me, for my, for, for example, for me as a, as a podcast, I'm always trying to get guests, you know what I mean? Like, I just feel weird. Like this one uh, older podcaster, he said there was a, I don't want to say who it was, but there was a, there was a band playing. I really wanted to get this guy on my uh, podcast and I was friends with the drummer. So the drummer invited me out to the gig. So afterwards I meet the musician and uh, I, and so I, he's like, you should ask him at the gig, you know, to do your podcast. And I asked him and then he's like, oh, I don't want to do any more podcasts. And then I just felt so stupid. I was like, oh, I wish I wouldn't have asked him that. Was, you know what so I mean? I, I get exactly what you're saying, but I also know that, um, I know that you can't get what you want unless you ask. Exactly. That's, a th- <laughs> see, that's what I struggle with. I don't know. It's like, it, that's, what's a weird thing about, uh, trying you're to- at that point where you should I don't know your inner working, so forgive me, but your podcast has grown so much. And I mean, you're the king of this right now. Yeah, you have to know that, at least in our world, in our genre, you're you're the king. And uh, what? No, I've never heard that. But thank you. That's uh, means a lot to me. You know, everybody that does a podcast looks up to you and all of us that have done your show enjoy it so much. I mean, you're winning. But you're at that point where you should have someone booking for you. Do you have a manager or, or someone that goes out and and gets the guests for you? No, I, that would be fucking amazing. That's what I want. I, I want a producer, somebody that can do that and edit the, the episodes and edit the clips and stuff like that. I've been looking for that. I posted a video about it explaining what I want. 
but yeah. uh, it's just it's hard. It's it's hard to uh, the the hardest thing about the podcast thing is just is making money off of it and getting people to listen to an entire podcast. Even sometimes I have some really big name famous people on my show, and but, but you know if they do like a hundred interviews. No one's going to listen to a hundred interviews, even if you're the biggest fan of the guest or whatever, like it's just, so it's really competitive. That's uh, thank you for saying that though. That's really uh, flattering to hear that. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, and I don't mean to take away from anyone else. Cause I know it's a small community and you know, Steve helped me write my book. So, you know, Steve, Oh, Steve is great. I love him. And he does a great podcast and, and I have a lot of friends. Do you know Bay? That does yeah. Bay Ragney. Yeah. He's super he, nice. He's great too they're great. And I am honored to do all the podcasts, but I remember I just being a hundred percent honest with you. I remember the day I got the new book in my hand and all I thought was I got to get back on Chuck's show. <laughs> that is so amazing to hear that. Like, but, I don't know how to react to that. I don't, I don't get a lot of compliments. So it's like, but, really I, but you know, and I got to tell you, part of it is your production level, your value. When you post who's coming on your show and the stuff, all, all all of your advertisement and all of your marketing, it just looks next level to me. I think it looks great. Wow. That's, that's, thank you for saying that. I feel like my production is not good enough when I look at other podcasts and things. So I'm trying to level that up. That's why I'd like you to gotta, hire someone. You got to aspire to be, you always have to aspire yeah. to be better, right? But I, I, you, I think all of us, I know for a fact, all of us look forward to getting to be on your show and, and you get, you get some bigger names than a lot of your, your, your peers get, you know, that yeah, you're doing something extremely special. So thank you. That's really nice to hear. Yeah. A lot of it is just grinding. I'm sure, as you know, it's just sending out so many emails and so much rejection. And uh, I saw this thing yesterday. It was so cool. It said like, don't fake it till you make it, fake it till you fail. Like just fail, get back up, try again. And uh, that's, that re uh, reminds me of this quote that I wanted to talk about, ask you about from your book, where you said that you learned so much from Brett Michaels too. The reason we never made it when I looked at all the lessons that I learned from Brett was because I didn't walk the walk with Evic. Our internal identity was that of a bar band. We never actually thought of ourselves as real rock stars. So we never thought to carry ourselves as such. The knowledge made me crazy. I would scream at my guys. Why do we give Brett what we give him, what we don't give the same thing to our own fucking band? So talk about that, about walking. The, what would you have done? How do you do that differently? I don't understand. You, you know, so it's interesting. It's a neat question. I appreciate I appreciate you asking this question because it still haunts me to this day. Uh, you know, my band became Brett's band. So other, I was the lead singer of Evic, but other than my guitar player, our whole band became Brett's band. And overnight, we were pros not that we weren't pros before we'd released records we were a club man uh but there's a mentality that you get in playing the bars and there's something different that happens when you become next level and i'll give you an example brett will often tell stories about how he would even as far back as when they were called paris him and ricky would come to the gig early dressed up different, have their hair up in hats. So they were completely unrecognizable while they would set their gear up. So that when Paris, who was just a little bar band, hit the stage, they looked like rock stars. Because in a club, I'm a, you know, you get there at five o'clock and you're setting your gear up and you're, you're setting your gear up and you're sound checking while people are eating dinner, right? And they're watching you do this. You don't look like a star. You, you get where I'm going. And, yeah. I, 
And I never thought much about that kind of stuff. And, you know, I don't mean to give Brett's secrets away, but similar to what you were just saying, Brett would call people and pretend to be someone else. <laughs> so that he would pretend to be Brett's manager, but it was really Brett. I love I, I didn't realize he did. I've heard so many stories about people doing that. So that's interesting that he did it too, though. And, and but all that stuff gave you a perception that was different because if you're in a local area and you want to play this local bar and I call and go, hey, it's Pete. I would like to have a gig. Then I'm just that local guy. But if I go, hey, I'm Pete Evick's manager and we're looking to just that little step makes you a little bit more pro. Do, do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. No, that's I, exactly right. And I was, I was never that I, I was a kick the dirt guy. And I was, um, you know, I, I, I I just never presented myself. They, it's funny. They say dress for the job you want, not the job you have. And that's a good example of what I never did. I just stayed a bar band until I wasn't a bar band instead of trying to not be a bar band in the bar. You know, that, you know, kiss. So what would you have done differently though? Would you have worn, yeah. Would you have worn kiss makeup? Would you have worn big hair and makeup or like different dress differently? Or I don't know that I would dress differently because even on the stage with Brett to this day, I just wear a t-shirt and my vans. And that's very important to me to be who, who I am. Uh, I, I wouldn't have faked it like that, but I would have, maybe I wouldn't have gotten super drunk every night on stage. I was drinking with the audience instead of, I was one of them instead of the rock star on the stage. Does that make sense? And and it worked for me at that level. We were the kings of what we were doing. There were lines out the door to see our band play at a bar, right? But no one would have ever walked into that bar and gone, these guys deserve to be on an arena stage because all we did was drink Jägermeister and, and party on the stage. And I was bringing that level I was bringing the best of that level you could. And if that's all I ever wanted in life, that would have been great. But I would go home and wonder why I wasn't Van Halen. Right. And, and that first night I ever played with Brett, I understood everything. It was just, you bring your a game all the time. I remember I'd play seven nights a week, you know, sometimes down in Panama city, Florida, play four sets a night, seven nights a week. So you'd be on a Monday night. And I know this sounds, this is, I tell this story and I thought it was funny for a lot of years. When I look back, there was a night that I was so bored on a Monday night on the off season at a beach town getting paid to play. And I was so bored that I decided that to play the come on, feel the noise guitar solo in every single song we played. So I played it in the right key and the right tempo, but I played the, to me, that was a funny joke. And the entire night surfaced around whether I was going to be able to pull this off on every single song. And I was entertaining myself. That was on pro. That was on pro. I back then I thought it was the funniest thing in the world, but there was maybe nine people in that club. I should have treated those nine people like they were 10,000 and played my ass off and wanted them to walk out thinking we were the best fan in the world. And instead I just wanted to see if I could do something stupid. Hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah. Because I feel like, that kind of was the poison mentality too, that I think they talk about and like how hard, like he would make these flyers and did they have like, I feel like maybe I even heard that they kind of had like some smoke machines or lights or something like maybe that was part of it too. Like building more of a, of yeah. a show with the, along with the music. 
That's yeah. And when I was younger, you know, like you, you, you read in the book, there's a whole section where we used to use the flash pots in the bars. And I, you know, we did used to bring a show. And then when the grunge thing hit and I was still playing in the clubs, I remember thinking, well, they don't have a show. So I, I, I slacked off. I, I stopped doing all that because it wasn't cool anymore for a long time. You, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it's just, there was just different things that, I knew I could play good. I knew the band was good, but we just we just treated it. Uh, and I thought I was being pro. That's the problem is hindsight, right? Because at any given time back in that day, I would have told you I'm working harder than anybody. And I was. I did wake up and I worked hard, but I was I was working harder instead of smarter, if that made sense. It was more important for me to have seven gigs a week than have two that looked like arena shows where I could have probably pulled in more money, charged more and had a more valuable product. Um, I, you know, you know, Chuck, it's hard to, it's hard to explain what I'm saying other than the way I did in the book. I just didn't know what I was doing. Uh, but I thought I did because I was so, you become a big fish in a small pond and there's one in every single town, right? And there's one in every single, there's the top band in every town, three or four top bands, whatever. And you just, um, you just start to believe, you know, everything. There's a whole segment in that book. I think, I don't know if you would remember where I talk about my drummer in some odd reason, Keith Sarna, me and him butt heads all the time. He had different ideas about everything. And I just disagreed with him all the time because it was my band and I was the one getting the calls to do the gigs and it must be me. No one, a drummer doesn't know anything. And, and there's a good chance he was right about a lot of that stuff, <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, it is. It's like hindsight is 2020 and yeah, I don't know. That's why I try to learn about all this. stuff. I try to learn the path because I think it's whether you're doing music or podcasting or starting all- a business or whatever, it's all this like learning success. And I feel like Brett Michaels is you've learned a lot from him because he's, he's done a lot of those things. He's had a business. He's had a TV show. He's had a band. Yeah. How can you not? I, I always make the joke and I may have told this to you the last time we were on the show. It's one of my favorite moments ever is uh, Eddie trunk was out watching my band play. And he, this was only like three years ago. I've, Eddie's come to see me play lots, but on this particular night um, he's come to see me play my acoustic thing a lot, but this was my full live band with me and Eric Brittingham and a couple other people. Uh, and he walks up and he goes, man, your voice is great. And you're, you're such a good front man. And it was a compliment, but I remember in my brain and I said to Eddie, I said, well, I've spent the last you know 20 years next to the best front man in the world. If I didn't learn something that that's pretty embarrassing. Like I should be a good front man. If I'm, if I'm not a good front man after 20 years standing next to the best, then fuck me. Right. Then I'm a big idiot. Well, yeah, and you learned, um, and you also talk about in the book how you learned how to be a tour manager from Dana Strum of Slaughter. Oh. It was like, because, and he he had been doing it for Vince Neal and stuff, and so you at, you reached out to him and you learned a ton about how to be a good tour manager from him. One of, one of the scariest phone calls of my life, to be honest with you, because I didn't know Dana. I knew who he was. He kind of knew who I was or whatever. But uh, I, I remember the phone ringing, and I remember going, I don't even know how to ask this question. And and Dana, have you ever talked to Dana? No, I've tried to get him on the show, but I know that they're not doing press because there's a slaughter documentary coming out or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So Dana's business, 
like like you're not gonna go hit the town partying and laughing and joking with Dana. And and I knew that about him. And I I just remember thinking, what this fucking guy's just gonna hang up on me. Like I'm gonna call and I have to ask a question that I'm certain no one's ever asked him. And it's not gonna be interesting to him. And why would he want to tell me any of this stuff? And if when he answered the phone and I said, I said, I don't know how to I don't even know how to ask you this question, but I'm put in this position to be what you are right now. And I don't know how to do it. And he just opened the floodgates, man. And he, he was so cool, taught me everything. And, uh, and it's funny. I just sent him a copy of the book yesterday. Sorry, my dog's chiming in. <laughs> and, um, all right. All right. We're all done. We're all done. <laughs> um, but he's wonderful. Uh, he's so smart. Dana knows everything, you know, Dana's from Silver Spring, Maryland. Most people don't, I don't think know that, which is right up the road from where I'm from. And, uh, but he's instrumental in finding, you know, Randy Rhodes. Do you know that he was, he was the one that got Randy Rhodes into Ozzy Osbourne. I don't think I did know that. Yeah. Yeah. I laugh with him sometimes because he, he is responsible for finding Randy Rhodes and he's responsible for finding Vinnie Vincent. So Hmm. he found one of the greatest of all time and one of the biggest train wrecks of all time. Well, and you know what else they, they found? I th- I'm assuming that he found uh, their drummer. Uh, what's it? God, now I'm blanking on it. Uh, Zoltan Chaney. I think his name is. So Zol- Zoltan is actually. Zoltan, he is freaking the most insane drummer. I love <laughs> him. It's incredible to watch, right? Yeah. Yeah. So he was actually Blando's friend. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah, him nice. and Blando had known each other for a lot of years, and that's where he came from. Yeah, but you talk I, about a guy who plays like he's like you know doing a show for a million people. Blando, uh, no Zoltan. I mean, Zoltan. just the way he like the, the uh, all the visuals. Like, I don't even know. I don't know a lot about drumming, so I don't. Maybe he's technically not a good drummer, but I think he's so fun to watch. I love well, watching drummers. I mean, I think they're amazing. Te- technically, you know. He's playing Motley Crue songs in the Vince Neil band, and Tommy's considered one of the best, right? So he's pulling that off, and he's pulling it off while he's jumping twenty feet in the air. So he's he's an incredible drummer, without a doubt. Yeah. He's yeah. so fun to watch. I mean, I just love watching any musician. I I, I just love music. I mean, I, I I'm so fascinated because I suck. So I when anybody like the new Guns and Roses song came out uh, yesterday, and I was and I'm like, this is amazing it's way better than anything I could write. You know, people criticize it or whatever, but I didn't listen yet. I read an article where it said it was a throwaway song from Chinese democracy. And I thought, I don't, I don't know if I want to hear that, but I have to listen. I, I, I still, mean, yeah. I mean, and I, I, yeah, it's not their best song or whatever, but it's still way better than anything I could ever make. I got it. I got it. What is their best song to you? Oh man, that's, that's a tough, I really like the song. You could be mine. I think that's one of my, that was like, right. When I, that era kind of is when I got into rock and guns yeah. and roses. And then I went back and obviously, I mean, I'd heard some of the singles from appetite, but when I bought the album and then like, it's so easy, I was like, oh, you yeah. know, like just the way they had that, like, fuck you attitude. Like we don't give a shit because I right. didn't have that as a kid. So listening to somebody else who had it, I was like, these guys are fucking cool. I, uh, my I still still think my favorite Guns N' Roses song is Rocket Queen. I love it. That's a good one too. It's got a cool yeah. groove and it's got the you know the story behind it how they it's yeah. like soul having sex with Steven Adler's girlfriend like those sounds are on the yeah. 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 But I love that I love that song. I love Appetite, man. Who doesn't though, right? Yeah, you ever have any run-ins with those the Guns guys or uh, Steven Adler's played with us a few times. Um 
other than that, no, no. I uh, I hadn't even seen Guns N' Roses till last year. First time in my life was last year, or maybe two years ago. Uh, and uh, I was a big fan of the music, but I I um, I just never got around to going to see them. And when I went to see it, I was mine. I was already a giant fan of Slash, but have you seen it live? Like recently, yeah, actually, I've seen I've seen the new one. I think three or four times. I saw them with Chinese Democracy once, and then my first concert ever was Motorhead, Guns N' Roses, and Metallica in the Kingdom in Seattle. Oh, right on, right on. So I'd never seen Slash live, and he blew my mind, man. He blew my mind, like not a missed note, not it just pure, uh, it just he just lives and breathes it. It, it it a lot of times people the one thing people say about me is that I make it look easy, um, and I think he makes it look easy. It's like he's just breathing whatever that stuff is. It was like he could be in the shower or he could be driving a car and still be playing like that. I it, I was blown away. And and whoever that other guitar player is with him right now is Richard Forbes. Holy fuck, dude! That guy's incredible. Like. Next level incredible. I, I had no idea. I don't know why they have him in the band. I mean, Izzy didn't play like that. You know what I mean? But but that guy, there's so many good players out there. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm a huge Izzy fan too, I, especially his songwriting. I just feel like he was an integral part of the songwriting. I feel like they well, need to bring him clear. back. It's clear, them. right? Because he's the missing element. And and that's what's missing still is that sound. So you never know, you know? Yeah. We, I don't know if I told you this before, but, uh, and this is not a diss. It's just a story on the one record that me and Brett did called jamming with friends, where we had different players play on the different records, uh, or in different songs. We had Joe Perry play and Joe Perry sent us his tracks and they were great, but they weren't what we expected. Right. And, and, uh, who's the other guitar player, Brad Whitford, Mm -hmm. me and Brett literally had a conversation. We're like, did we get the wrong guy? <laughs> what? No. Should we have gotten Brad Whitford to play? Uh, he, uh, Joe played slide guitar on our country re- remake of Every Rose. So all that slide guitar in that recording is okay. him. But it didn't sound Aerosmithy. If you know what I'm saying. Maybe he wasn't. Maybe he was trying to make it sound maybe, different. Maybe. I just remember me and Brett putting the tracks in, expecting something a little different. It was great. I, you understand I'm saying it was great. We just thought it was going to be something different. And we were like, oh, man, should we gotten Brad to do this? And uh, and it's the same thing with Izzy. Slash is this amazing guitar hero. But Izzy clearly, clearly defined that sound. That's the part that we're still wanting to hear that doesn't happen yet. It has to be him. It's a missing link, right? And I, when I love, uh, I think Steven Adler, I think his drumming is something about it. I don't know. Again, I don't know any of the technical things or whatever. You could say Matt Sorum is a better drummer or the, um, I think, is it Frank Fur, the guy they have now is technically Frank better, Adler. but there was something about, they say uh, Steven Adler had this swing or whatever, but there's something about he that did. first album. He did. Just the drums is so the cowbell and stuff. I love it. And, and rocket Queens a prime example of that. And the, uh, yeah, there's something there's, you know, you know, I'm going to go on record and say something right now that I never say, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's no known. It's, it's, I'm going to push the limits here. <laughs> Good. I love it. 
<laughs> hey, on that last time I did Bay show, I said some shit about Pantera and it went viral. Did did you see all that happen? No. When was that? Um, maybe six months ago. Oh. Yeah, I said something about the singer Pantera that perhaps I shouldn't have said. And I still believe what I said. I never took it back. I never apologized. But, uh, you know, so so there's no secret to the rock and roll community that that um, me and me, you know, me and Cece are really good friends. Uh, but me and Rocket, we don't get along very well. And it's funny, his birthday's the day at the day before mine. We're both Leos. We're probably more similar than anyone would ever dream. Right. Um, but he doesn't love that uh he doesn't love the solo band and he he knows how much a part of that I am. And so I'm just I'm I he's the last time I saw him, we gave each other a hug and everything was really, really nice, but I'm not his favorite person in the world. And uh but there's a lot of people, it's no secret that he's not considered one of the greatest drummers, right? It, there's no secret to that. Um, you know, but stylistically, he made that poison sound. Same thing with Steven Adler. He does drum in a very unique way that creates that sound. And that's what, just like Guns N' Roses or just like any of those bands back in the day, um, it was the sum. It really was the sum of all four of those four or five members that would create something not, it didn't have to be groundbreaking. It just had to sound somehow fresh or new or something different, you know, and uh rocket does this thing with the hi hats that no one else does. He has a swing on the hi hat uh, that, that created part of poison style, because if you would have just had Fred Curry or even Tommy Lee playing on those poison songs, they would have just been hard rock songs. And he had this uh, rocket has this jazz influence that was able to give those songs a twist that no other drummer would have had, you know? And, uh, and so my point is going back to Adler and you saying, you don't know a lot about drums. It just like, just like Kurt Cobain, it doesn't matter whether you were good or not. It was, did you deliver something brand new to the world? Well, that sounds like a compliment to Ricky. Well, that's what I'm saying. This is the first yeah. time in history I've ever complimented the guy. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> well, and also the thing that I love about Ricky Rocket is, uh, first of all, his name is fucking awesome. Ricky Rocket. And then he just, he, uh, along with all the other members of Poison, he had that cool look. And like, I think his look kind of evolved. I kind of like yeah. that crack, crack a smile era where they, they looked really cool in that, in that era. I thought that was kind of a, a neat look. Yeah. It was like a modern rock, but like still. It, it, there, was ele- there was elements to the grunge, but they still, they, they still looked, yeah. all of them had super long hair at that time. If you remember, like, like, and uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, Poison always, always, even to this day, they, they, they take the best pictures. Let's just say that. <laughs> <laughs> they, they look cool. You know what I mean? They do. Yeah. Well, you talk about saying things that you shouldn't say. Like, I like that part in the book where you say, I mean, maybe I shouldn't spoil it, but you just say, look, I probably shouldn't tell this story. And I was like, oh, this is going to be good. And then you kind of get into a thing about Don Dock and you know, I don't think you really throw sh- through shade at him or anything, but people should read that part too. I thought that was interesting. I didn't think it was as bad as you kind of built it up no. to be. Though. I agree. I agree. Um, 
it was that was a weird moment because because over the years when I first joined Brett's band, Don wasn't um, wasn't mean to me, but he wasn't super nice to me. Uh, I was the new guy in town, and um, we at that point, Dokken and us were playing together a whole whole lot, and then um, maybe maybe three years into it, he walked up to me, goes. Uh, you got a good, you got a good gig here, kid. He called me kid. You got a good gig, gig here, kid. Uh, keep it up. You're doing great. And that was neat to be accepted from Don. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then we've had a couple moments over life that have bonded us a little bit. Uh, yeah, we're certainly not buddies. We don't call each other or anything like that. But he, uh, that was that really affected him. The story I tell in the book. You, his face was he wasn't being a dick about it. it. I can't explain it. He just didn't expect that. None of us expected it to happen. Whether we were friends or in the band or road crew, none of us thought Rock of Love was going to do that, and it did it overnight. You, you know what I mean? So all of a sudden, Don's playing one night to uh, you know rock fans, and the next night he's playing to. Uh, pop culture fans and it, it threw him for a loop you know what i mean he wasn't prepared for it but yeah i it's funny that you man you retain that knowledge so much i you're right i don't think well i just read the book yesterday most of it i took <laughs> and i took copious notes so that i don't forget yeah i don't retain i'll probably forget this tomorrow but yeah i wasn't trying to talk shit about don it was just i thought it was an interesting thing to tell the story and obviously yeah. you thought it was too yeah no it was and then just that whole rock of love i think this part was really interesting about how you talk about the cameras followed you guys around on tour. And it is weird to think about this. You had cameras on you 24 seven. And like, you're like, like, what if you had cameras on you 24 seven, like what you're picking your nose or like you, you right. your weird face or you say a off color joke. I'm like, God, that right. would like start to bring a paranoia level that I can imagine would be very stressful. It was stressful. And, and I, like I explained in the book, the stressful part of it was we weren't even really characters. We were just the background, but was still happening. I mean, they had cameras everywhere all the time. And and they're and, only looking for something crazy, right? So like if yeah. you did make a bad joke or you did or you tripped and fell, like that's probably the thing that's going in the show. <laughs> yeah, right. The reason I'm laughing is 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 my girlfriend is right here. And did you remember the show Life as I Know It? Uh, which one was that? Life as I know it was the show that came after Rock of Love season three. Okay. It was more of a TV show about it was kind of like the Osbournes, where Brett, oh. Brett, it was more about Brett's family, but on tour. And we were uh, we were playing in Indiana one night, and we had a bus party after the show, and we filmed the bus party. And as the party was over, and we thought all the cameras were gone, and we thought the whole thing was over, uh, my girlfriend Tina falls flat on her fucking face. Oh shit. Getting getting walking off the bus. And fuck if it didn't show up on the show and on the commercials. And it was that week's it was the clip that week of the commercials. And uh, you know, coming this week. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> oh, so yeah, that's like uh, your fear is a uh, uh that sucks. Yeah, so you're exactly right. You know, but then I think and, you also kind of gotta laugh at some of that stuff. I mean, that's uh, who hasn't fallen on their face before. I mean, everybody's done it, especially yeah, if you yeah. live around ice. Right. And then there was the, the, in the season two of rock of love. Uh, we, I don't know if I said this part in the book or not, but uh, my drummer, Chuck, they f were out filming us playing in the bar, not the, season one. There was a scene similar, but this was, a, this was the next year. Um, 
and they they filmed us and and Brett goes back to his room and they follow us and the girls out to the bar. They did this every season, one episode. They did this uh, each year. And um, my drummer Chuck gets so fucking drunk that somehow he kisses one of the girls, Brett's contestants, right? Or one of the Rock Club girls. And I saw the cameras and Chuck's married and he's so drunk. He doesn't know where he's at. And I saw the cameras and I saw the producers and and as soon as it happened, all the cameras were like sharks. They all ended up over there. Like they're on comms. You know what I mean? Like, oh, we got something. Get over there. You know what I mean? And uh, I remember I went to the producers. And I begged them. I said, man, he's married. I said, please, please don't embarrass his wife. I said, he'll tell his wife what happened. We're not trying to lie about it. But don't embarrass his wife by showing this on national TV show. Oh, we probably won't. And then sure as fucking enough. It was the highlight of the fucking episode. You, you know what I mean? <laughs> oh, yeah. I hate that shit. And that's something I struggle with as a podcaster when I do these interviews. Cause I'm like, okay, do I bring this up? This is like kind of gossipy and like, do I don't really want to be known as that, but also yeah. like it's interesting sometimes. So then you're, you're kind of, it's like an ethical dilemma. Yeah, yeah. Anyone but, ever asked me, by the way, if anyone ever asked me to, hey, can you take this part out? I fucking take it out, though. I, I'm yeah, never right. that kind. Right. And, you know, as far as those cameras go, again, uh, there was, again, in, in the other show, um, Life As I Know It, there's, and I don't remember if I talk about this in the book either, not to be honest with you, but uh, there was a season, there was an episode where Brett's having a conversation with me and his father about, because both me and his father were divorced, and part of Brett's fear of getting married is he never wanted to be a statistic. He doesn't want to end up divorced. His parents were divorced. He remembers that to this day, and he just doesn't want to be a statistic, right? So he's having this conversation. They're filming us for hours, talking about the pros and cons of getting married and what a divorce is like. And I go on and on and on about my marriage was great. I say all these wonderful things about my ex-wife say all this stuff. And then somehow the conversation leads into me saying me and her have become completely different people. We still get along. We still love each other. But if I was presented with the situation today, I probably wouldn't marry my wife again. Right. But I give this whole explanation ahead of time. The clip they use is solely, I wouldn't marry my wife again. And they took it so far out of context that it makes me look, if you were to watch it, I look like a dick. You know what I'm saying? And my phone, the second that aired, my phone has never rang so much. Her family, my family, everybody. And it, but you know what? You know what you're doing when you do that, when you go into those shows, you, you know that. So shame on you, not them. They're, they're there to get you. You get in the water with a shark, you know, you might get bit, right? Hmm. That's you know. interesting. That's good to know. That's a good tip right there. If you ever end up on a reality show, know that they're looking for the dirt. And uh, yeah, CC is the one that told me that. CC, when we started filming Rock of Love, because CC had done Surreal Life prior to Brett doing Rock. Okay. And CC came to me and he said, uh, he goes, you be careful because all they're looking for is a rating. They're looking for a moment. He goes, that's their job is to get you being an idiot. And uh, so it was always on my mind. <laughs> you know what I mean?
That would be so stressful because I'm always an idiot. So I feel like yeah, I yeah, right. never do that if I ever it get changed it my life. Like I said in the book, it changed my life because I was always an outgoing guy and I was always just fine with who I am. And those cameras turned me into a different human being that I still, to be honest with you, I, it wasn't even my show. It wasn't my show. And I was grateful. I was grateful for the success that it was giving Brett, which in turn became success for me and the band. I, I was I, I can't explain how it changed the perception. It changed my career. It changed everything about my professional life, but it killed who I was 20 years ago. I'm not that guy anymore. And it was because of those cameras following me that turned me into an introvert that I still have not backed out of or recovered from. Really? Oh, okay. It, I didn't realize. So that's like not a good thing then. You know what? I I play the I I, I toured the world. I've toured the world. I've done some cool things. I I, I, I text message Ace freely. <laughs> you know what I mean? So there's way more good than bad. I've just become an introvert because of, of that last season of Rock of Love. That's all. <laughs> well, yeah, you talk about, because um, you talk about kindness, and I feel like you're a pretty kind guy for the most part. I mean, sure, nobody's perfect, but um, and the one of the, the quotes that I wrote down was really cool. He said, never being satisfied in your career translates to never being satisfied with who you are as a person. And when you're not satisfied with who you are as a person, it's difficult to let other people close to you because you feel you have very little to offer until you reach whatever place you feel defines success. Right. Yeah. I, I, I mean, that sums up who I think I am. That's It's funny to hear that read back. Yeah. But very, that's very true. That's very how I feel, you know, very much. So you feel satisfied as uh, with who you are now or as more of an introvert? I wish that I was more outgoing than I am now. I used to love going out to the merch booth after the shows and interacting with the fans and talking to people and all that stuff. And and sometimes now I'll walk to the backstage door and I think I'm going to go out there and I something cripples me and I can't walk out that door. Uh, and I don't know why that is. I don't know. Some nights I can do it. Some nights I can't. Uh, so... No, I, maybe I'm not. I'm satisfied with who I've become professionally. There's a lot of work to do with who I am personally still, I think. So maybe I contradict that quote a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think there's always work to be done with who we are. I mean, I I love that shit. I love self-development and personal growth. And that's why I loved your book so much, because I felt like, oh, I can relate to these stories. It's inspiring. I'm learning knowledge. I mean, I love all the stuff, the rock talk and stuff, too, but I loved like the journey. That's the thing. Like you get the call from Brett Michaels. Like that's like the dream for everybody. Everybody gets that call someday, hopefully that, yeah. you know, changes your life. Yeah, very much. And it's funny. I laugh a lot of times because that movie Rockstar is considered kind of corny, but that I love that movie. <laughs> every part, every part of it's true. It's my life because, because poison was one of my favorite bands. I have videotapes of doing poison songs in, in high school talent shows and covering their songs. So that, that story is, it rings real true to me, man, you know, and even, even, even the end of it where he starts, he ends up back playing acoustic shows uh, locally. I've gone back to doing that too, even though I'm still in Brett's band, it didn't end exactly like that, but I've even experienced that. I, I have this whole new, wonderment in my life of you know for a while i it wasn't an ego thing it was a value thing i've become this so i'm not going to step back down to doing this and and then when covid happened and all the local bars that supported me 
before I was in Brettspan and, and, and helped me feed my kids were all in trouble. Uh, this is a longer story than I thought I was going to tell. Sorry. Um, let me go back and say when I would play locally after being in Brettspan for so many years, I, I demand it. I demand it to be paid more than most local bars would pay because I wasn't just a local band anymore. I'd done all this stuff and I deserve, you know, and I would, I would have this deal with any local bar that I would play and I would only play a couple times a year. And uh, I, I would, I would say, I want you to be honest with me. I will negotiate pay, but I want to be paid the most that you pay anybody because I'm a hybrid. I'm here as a local musician because I grew up here, but I've done this and that and this and that and that. And I deserve, I was kind of trying to balance local guy and rock star. And when COVID happened, I saw all the bars and all the service industry hurting and suffering. And all of a sudden I thought, these are the guys that supported me when I had nothing. And now, I walk around cocky and I demand uh, I demand more money than maybe they can afford just to have me play this place. And then my mind changed and I went back to all of them and I said, I want to play everywhere. I want to play acoustic. I want to get back to my roots and I want to, I want to do this and I'll do it for whatever you pay everybody else because I'd rather help you instead of take your money. I'd rather help you get back on your feet during COVID changed my perception. If that makes sense. No, absolutely. You're oh. you're trying to help out. I totally understand that. Instead of using what little star power I may have for myself, it was time to use it to help the people that helped me. And I started playing these acoustic gigs again, and I fucking love it, man. Like last week, I played in front of thirty thousand people at the Tampa Amphitheater during during um, the Party Girl tour, and the very next night, I came home and I played a small bar in front of 10 people with my acoustic guitar and both gigs were as exciting to me. That's you know? awesome. That that's when, you know, you've found the secret, whatever that may be to happiness is that you can be happy doing both. Yeah. You just gotta, yeah. Eventually you, you put it all behind you and remember what you got into it for. And you got into it for the love and passion of, of like I said, what MTV famous means watching that TV, watching MTV. And those guys made me happy, whether it was Judas priest with, I remember love bites was the second video I ever saw on MTV. First video was Genesis. Um, uh, that's all just not then it was going all right. That was wrong. I was right. And then the second video was love bites from Judas priest. And I remember going, Oh fuck, this is how this is going to be. This is going to be great. And it wasn't because they didn't play all those metal videos all the time. I waited another week till I saw like Van Halen or something. You know what I mean? But yeah. I, I remember the feeling I had Rob Halford in my living room. It was the greatest thing in the world. And that's what we do this for. And, and eventually you start to do it for the chicks and the money and the drugs and the, that stuff comes and it, it's alluring. But most of us, the itch wasn't for any of that. The itch was pure passion of the way music made us feel and to come full circle and finally get back to that. That's when you win. That's, that's when you win, when you know that that's what you're doing it for. And that's where I am right now. I am very much, if one person wants to hear me sing, I want to sing for you. You know what I mean? I love it. Great. Well, people should definitely get the book. It's out now MTV famous. 
and uh, follow you on Instagram for all the other your shining soul candle company. You got the bourbon uh, whiskey and uh, the sauce stuff is coming out soon too. And of course you're in Brett Michaels band. You guys have show dates as well. And then I always end promoting a charity. I think last time you heard you promoted uh, mission 22, which is help right. friends. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, if I, if I get to, prom- I don't, you know, obviously there's a Brett Mike's Brett Michaels life rocks foundation, uh, which is, you can donate to that right on his website. And I should have promoted that before. I should have kept it in my own family, but life rocks is unique. Brett's foundation is great. He, um, he, he takes the money and then he gives, he calls it a dollar in dollar out. There's no administration fees. There's nobody but him. So every dollar that comes in goes out and he sends it to soldiers. He sends it to animals and he sends it, sends it to, uh, uh, women uh, that have been an act of violent domestic crimes and stuff like that. Uh, so you never know where the money's going to go, but it's always going somewhere very important. So if, if, if you could promote Brett's life rocks foundation, it's very unique charity and very. That good. sounds great. I love all those causes. I'll put that uh, website in the show notes along yeah. with the, the links to is it, do you have a website that has all this, to, all your stuff on one or link tree or something like that? I don't have any. I just have my social medias. Okay. There's epic.com, but all that's ever up there is if I have a show date for my band, there's nothing really in there. Okay. I've lost track of actual websites, social media. I just do it all there. Okay, cool. I know you got a flight to catch, so I'll, I'll let you go, but thanks for doing this. This was a lot of fun. And again, come Thank back you. anytime when you have something. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. That's I, I would, lo- like I said last time, I, I when I get to Arizona again, I would love to just go out and hang out if you have it up, if you're up to it. Yeah, we talked about you wanted to go to that Jalapeno Inferno. Jalapeno Inferno. I heard they opened a third one now. I don't know where it's at. In Gilbert or something, I heard they put one in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I would love it if you would take the time next time I'm there. I I haven't been there. We haven't played out there. We haven't been around. So, but but if yeah, are you going to do a show here? Because I look, I kept looking at the tour dates and I didn't see one, but I saw some openings in December that maybe you could squeeze one in. Maybe it's not on the books now. Uh, I know that Live Nation loved the party girl thing and they're buying some more dates and going to put them in different markets next year. So I hope we go out west. We didn't go out west at all. Nothing. No it's California. so weird that Mark McGrath is uh, is on that. It's, it's so yeah. weird because he follows me on Instagram and I don't know. I don't know if it was a mistake. He's never no. liked anything I've posted, but he no, followed no, no, no. me. And I was like, why does he follow me? Was this a mistake? <laughs> no, no. Mark. I got to tell you, man, he is the coolest guy in the world and he, he knows everything. He, he is a researcher. He will spend all day just researching things. So if anybody he knows has done your podcast, he checked it out. So he knows, I mean, he knows me, so he knows you and and tons of other people he knows that you've done, you know, and uh, yeah, Mark is, um, Mark's amazing. I don't know if you're a fan of Sugar Ray, but as a human yeah. being, as a fan and of he, his work, because uh, he was on, uh, I thought it was Entertainment Tonight, but I yeah. think it was Extra or was it both? Yeah. I, I can't remember. He's done all that kind of stuff and he was game show host and all that stuff. But he is, the interesting thing to me about Mark is he, he can't learn enough. He just, every, even if you're having a conversation with him, it's educational to him. He's learning something about you and and he takes it in and he remembers it and he'll ask questions he'll always ask my favorite thing with mark is no matter what story you tell him he goes now what year was that and he 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 he's a timeline he he is what everyone thinks eddie trunk is 
You know what I mean? As far as this rock historian, which Eddie is, Eddie is, but, but Mark, Mark knows everything from the, from Elvis to, to, you know, the, the, to, to jelly roll. He, he just retains it all and keeps it all in. He does not, it's almost like fear of missing out. He's afraid to not know something. So he knows everything. He knows who you are. There's no doubt about it. That's cool. I love stuff like that where people are really into. Th- I'm into so many things too, and it's not just music, but uh, that's really cool. I love hearing stories like that. Yeah, awesome, buddy. Cool. All right, we'll let you get on your flight, and uh, hopefully, we'll see you in Arizona at some point. Thanks, Chuck, so much, buddy. All right, see you, Pete. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the full podcast episode. Please help support our guests by following them on social media and purchasing their products, whether it be a book, album, film, or other thing. And if you have a few extra dollars, please consider donating it to their favorite charity. If you want to support the show, you can like, share, and comment on this episode on social media and YouTube. And if you want to go the extra mile, you can give us a rating or review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. Finally, make sure you're subscribed to the show on YouTube for the video versions and other exclusive content. We appreciate your support. Have a great rest of your day and shoot for the moon.